San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right, good evening, everybody. My name is Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer, coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle, down to Cabo, out to the desert. All these podcasts are on iymoney.com, commercial-free. We're free on iTunes. And if you'd like to listen on your app, uh, there's an app for 760-KFMB. And now time to introduce the main man of the hour. He's a CPA extraordinaire. He's an accomplished marathon runner, a best-selling author, a philanthropist, and a family office expert advising several high-net-worth families. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you tonight? Doing great, Joe. Baseball season in San Diego is mercifully over. <laughs> so. Well, we're well into the World Series now, Richard. Exactly. You know that. So exactly. it was over. It was over, <laughs> it was over midseason, I think. But, I think so. But uh, in any case, uh, look, the El Nino's coming and water's a big issue. Uh, we have on the line with us a, a global expert in the issue and problems of water. And uh, he's from a, a company called Mia. He's the vice president of global business relations there. And his name is David Arison. David, we have you on the phone. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you guys? Wonderful. Doing great. Thank you. And by the way, this is the first time we've had the son of a mother who was a previous guest on the show. Yes, so we're making a... It's making a, history in a sense. This is a precedent. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, David, um, when I, I think your company formed in 2008, and what was the incident? Now, you live mostly in Israel most of the, most of the time, right? Or you're back and forth to the States, or how does that work? Well, I'm back and forth all over uh, mm-hmm. all over the world. We operate in uh, me operates in about uh, ten countries, mm-hmm. but our group operates in uh, forty countries uh, worldwide. Um, Mia is owned by Arison Investments, mm-hmm. uh, an, an investment firm that um, believes that doing good is uh, is good business. Yeah, and uh, through um, implementing vision and values in our organizations, we uh, we try to uh, make a little bit of uh, change. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mia is is one of those businesses, and um, it focuses in water efficiency and uh, maximizing basically the efficiency of uh, distribution system in a uh, in a city. Gotcha. Now, j- just to back up a little bit. Um what about your educational background and what inspired you to get into the into the water efficiency business to begin with? Uh, do you have some expertise in that area or do you, have you just assembled a lot of experts along the way or how did the whole thing form? Well, me personally, I didn't have any expertise uh, going into it. I was uh, fresh out of uh, business school. Mm-hmm. Um, Mia is a company that was uh, formed uh, by my mother in 2008 with a vision to ensure an abundance of fresh water. Mm-hmm. Everybody's talking about water scarcity, and um, first of all, we think that we need to change the mindset of how we think about it and then what type of actions we take. So first of all, we talk about water abundance. We believe that water as a whole, as a resource in the world, uh, there is enough. We just need to manage it. Uh, and use it in a much more efficient manner mm-hmm. so that it could be sustainable for, for future generations. Yeah, agreed. We, we here in San Diego have just gone through about four months of extreme heat, and then we just had a two-day rainstorm that's now being followed again by extreme heat, and I would say 
virtually all of that water just ran well, into not, the ocean. Not to mention the, the four, three or four-year drought we've been in. Right, and David. we're in a three- or four-year drought and, and to start with. And there's been uh, up to 50 wildfires raging in Northern California and the Pacific Northwest, and there's probably, you know, we don't even hear about it on the news, but they're probably still still, uh, still raging up there. Um, it's a, I don't think we get good, good enough news coverage on that. But um, so, David, I know you're a global operation, uh, maybe you could tell us some of the cities you've been in and some of the success stories. I think I, I looked at your video this morning. It's very impressive. And um, I know Mia is it actually, it's a Japanese word, isn't it? Uh, Mia is a, is a Japanese word, but it's also one of the 72 names of God okay. in, uh, in the Jewish religion. And the meaning of the word Mia, when you break it down, is from God. And um, as we know, all the rain comes from uh, comes from the sky. So uh, mm-hmm. I believe that uh, God provides us with that water, and I also believe that um, He provides us with uh, sufficient with a sufficient amount. And we just need to know how to uh, use it better, uh, manage it, how to use it, how to transport it in a much more efficient way, so that we can we can have enough. Yeah. And you were mentioning. The drought in drought in California and uh, and the extreme heat and and, and the fires and uh, it's it's actually a very interesting situation because unfortunate situation because you're you're in extreme drought you don't have necessarily enough water or you need to build extra capacity of water to uh, meet future needs mm-hmm. and at the same time you need to spend so much of that water that you have to fight these fires. Yeah. So it's uh, it's kind of a double whammy, and um, personally, I don't know what the what the long term solution is there. But what we can provide is uh, bridging a gap a little bit between the supply and demand, mm-hmm. reduce uh, inefficiencies and leakage within urban uh, distribution systems, and then you're basically operating much more efficiently. You can optimize your uh, your production versus your um, uh, your demand, as well as hopefully having uh, excess water that that you can use for the fire for the firefighting, and not having that water coming account on account of uh, of something else. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, how many employees at Mia? Roughly, we have about 150 employees, but uh, since we do uh, projects that begin and and end we uh we grow and uh, shrink according to to the projects um we recently finished up a project in uh, manila in the philippines where they were losing about almost 70% of the production it's a concession zone of 9 million people where 6 million mm. people um were getting served only 6 out of 9 million were getting served and those six million had intermediate supply, meaning they did not have continuous 24 by 7 uh, uh, supply. Wow! And uh, we were able to uh, to partner with them. We did uh, leak detection, pressure management, uh, software implementation, various other technologies that we uh, and, we put in. And theft we detection built- also, right, David? There's a lot of water theft that goes on, right? Sorry, can you repeat oh, that? Water theft. I saw that on your website. There's yes, there's also there's also water there's also theft that we uh, that we address. Usually, it's a, a more of a minor component. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bigger components would be the pressure management. It would be the leak detection and repair, um, the quickness that you did detect it, the quality of the repair. Um, if you need to replace pipes, um, prefer repairing, but uh, replace where needed, mm-hmm. and. Um, 
we build a capacity within the utilities offices of 450 engineers that we recruited, we trained them, we worked together with that utility in the field and we were able to achieve uh, savings of 850 million liters per day, hmm. which now wow. serves an additional 2.8 million customers that were no longer connected to, that were previously not connected to the, uh, uh, to the grid. And the 6 million that I mentioned earlier that didn't have uh, 24 by 7, now all, the whole 9 million have 24 by 7. And this is all in Manila and the Philippines, right? This is in Manila and the Philippines. Um, we have other examples from uh, Sao Paulo in, uh, in Brazil, mm -hmm. from, uh, from Canada, from South Africa. We have um, our current flagship project that we are doing in, uh, in Nassau in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. It is a 10-year uh, project. Um, this one is uh, fully turnkey, so the utilities employees are not um, working on the project as of now. We're doing everything, and then at the, towards the end of the project, we're going to transfer the knowledge and the technology, and we're going to do training and long-term maintenance. Because achieving the um, targets in the project, it's, uh, it's a good thing. But if we don't know how to maintain them for a sustainable period of time, then we really achieve nothing. So... We need to be able to, to build that local capacity and to train them and to bring in a very high standard of uh, materials and business processes that, um, that they could uh, have after we leave um, the 10-year period of, uh, of the project. Yeah. And um, on, on the business model side... David, excuse me, though. We have, yes. to, we have to take a, a pause right there. We'll get to the business with uh, of Mia and um, David Arison right after this. Stay tuned. All right, we're back with more of It's Your Money in Your Life, and our special guest is David Arison, the Vice President of Global Business Relations at MIA. They're all about water efficiency in a global operation, and uh, David's back on the line. David, how, how much fresh water is out there? I heard it's like 1% to 3% 3, 3 of the w global water supply is only fresh water. Is that about right? Or? Yeah, well, most of, the, most of the water is uh, the oceans, the salt water. But these days we have, uh, we have very good technology to, uh, to salinate the, um, the sea water and turn it into fresh drinking yeah. water. That's well, actually how Israel was able to uh, bridge the gap between uh, supply and demand. We've been in drought ever since I've been living in Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and the fact that we need to... Um, conserve water and act use the water responsibly. Yeah, um, it, it's been with us since we were since we were young, and uh, now thanks to uh, technology and financing mechanisms, we're, we no longer have that fear. We have a sustainable amount of uh, of water. Um, and the cost I believe and the cost of these sal is not that prohibitive over there because we always hear that on this side that uh, the cost of desalinating is pretty expen expensive. But uh, what's your thought on that? It varies. Mm -hmm. it, it varies based on um, first of all which type of desalination are you, are you going to do, um, and it's mostly done by uh, reverse osmosis. Mm. And the technology is advancing. Um, energy is advancing. Mm -hmm. So so we're able to get it a little bit more cheaper. And it, and it really depends a lot on, on your uh, energy prices. In Israel, it's about 
um, 50 cents US for a cubic meter, which is 1,000 liters. Mm-hmm. Um, that is relatively expensive versus groundwater. Mm-hmm. But um, there are so many places in the world where it's so much more so much more expensive than that. Uh, it's it's really a pretty good benchmark. Well, we have uh, this uh, yeah we have this desal plant up in Carlsbad, right, Richard at Poseidon. Yeah, right. And um, do you know how that compares cost wise? Because I really don't know. Um, and we could always do the research. We'll, we'll, we'll do the research on that. Yeah. But David, question. Um, your mother has a book out, your mother, Sherry Erickson, has a book out called The Doing Good Model. The yep. subtitle is Activate Your Goodness in Business. I know it, 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 it's about 13 principles of, of goodness. I know with regard to MIA and related companies and related philanthropic and foundation organizations that, that are in your family, it's basically become the culture of how your businesses and philanthropic um, efforts um, have evolved and operate now in the world. Can, can you briefly describe what the doing good model is and why it's so important? Yes, of course. Um, so, Arison Group, we have Arison Investments and the Ted Arison Family Foundation. So, we're business and uh, and philanthropy. And over the um, over the years, my mother has worked very hard on advancing and implementing vision and values within uh, within business in philanthropy and organizations that she started it was it was uh, easier to mm-hmm. to get the, to get sure. it across but when we're talking about 90 year old organizations that are publicly traded it's uh, it's it's not easy to get a cultural change so for the for many many years she was working on um, uh, getting these visions uh, across and for example in Banca Poalim it would be the, the um, the main value in the vision would be financial freedom. Mm-hmm. For Shikuna Binui, which is a real estate and infrastructure company, uh, it would be sustainability. And uh, for Mia, it's uh, abundance. And, and, and what we did is we basically took the leading values from the visions of each of our organizations and we created a model. Uh, the way that we did it was was quite unique. Um, we did it cross board, meaning it wasn't just family sitting and defining it, and, um, and then telling management that you need to work with this. Mm-hmm. The CEOs and chairman of each of the organizations, whether it's business or philanthropy, they were involved in creating it. They were involved in defining it. They were involved in uh, coming up with the methods of implementation. So. We have 13. Uh, we have 13 values with uh, um, the vision of doing good in the middle, and um, basically we say, okay, this is our moral compass. We are now going to operate uh, under value under values. Mia is a, is a company that was born directly not from the uh, from the model. The model came a little bit later, but from this mindset of uh, implementing vision and values in, uh, in in business. And that's also why we're a little bit of a, a different type of uh, of business. And um, so we we implement uh, these uh, these visions and these values within our within our organizations. The way we do it is we have created a um, 
a, a community of forums which are cross-board, meaning you have participants from philanthropic organizations, from the publicly uh, traded companies, as well as the pi privately held uh, corporations, and everybody sits in a room together talking about now it's not top management people these are uh this is the day-to-day -day workforce mm -hmm. that that gets everything done for example um volunteering um they discuss the value of volunteering and how can i implement the value of volunteering in my organization and what do i have within my organization that i can bring to the table and share with uh, with the rest of the group in terms of uh, best practice so for us it's actually a little bit easier in terms of uh, volunteering. We have an organization called uh, Good Spirit. They know how to connect between people that volunteer in the community and people that need volunteers. And out of that, we've actually created uh, Good Deeds Day, where we uh, have this single day of volunteering all over the world. Last year, we were in um, 61 countries, 930,000 people uh, doing thousands and thousands of uh, various projects. Yeah, that's, just I mean, that's to, really uh, incredible. Impressive. But I want to read quickly the 13 principles. It's as follows. Financial freedom, purity, being, inner peace, fulfillment, vitality, giving, volunteering, language and communication, sustainability, added value for humanity, we are all one, and last but certainly not least, Abundance. So um, I want to ask you a question about abundance because we exist in an age where I would say information is abundant, but that doesn't necessarily mean that knowledge is. But, but, I, but I think that, that that isn't really useful unless we find ways to work with others and collaborate, which is maybe what you mean by we are all one, that we're all in this boat together and, and we need to find ways to be together and to work together. Yeah, the the way that we have the model built up is that it's all in a circle and then we have the doing good because they're all kind of interconnected. And, there, and it's not only the values between itself and the values between um, the vision of doing good. It's also the, the society, the organization, the individual. Mm -hmm. where, do, where does the individual take part within, within his personal life uh, versus um, work life? Um, when we talk about abundance, there's basically there's two sides to the coin. There's the, co there's the side where uh, you mentioned infor information. Yes, information is, is abundant. There's tons of information. But the other side of it is what do we do with that information? What is our responsibility and our accountability in the types of action that, that we take? So when we think of uh, when we think of water and we're talking about abundance, so there's many places that uh, today have enough amount of um, enough amount of water. Um, it doesn't mean we need to that we can be reckless about it. We need to be responsible with the uses of water. We need to make sure that the resources that we have are sustainable for for future generations. So the other side of um, of having the resource is being responsible about it, being accountable, and and, and making the right choices on how you're gonna um, how you're gonna con conduct yourself with that. Um, with regards to, to to all one, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, we could say that we live in uh, different countries. We have different cultures. We have uh, uh, speak different languages. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings, and we live in one single planet called the uh, planet Earth. And uh, if we all want to still live here in uh, future generations, then we have to learn how to get along better. Right. We have to learn how to um, uh, partner to leverage um, 
whether it's business or philanthropy, to create real impact in uh, in society. For uh, of course, for for a positive way. There you go. But David, let's give the website because we're uh, we're running out of time here. It's thedoinggoodmodel.com, right? Is that a good place for people to look for for starters? Definitely. Okay. And uh, as, you, as you mentioned, my mom put a book out there with uh, the whole process of, uh, of building the model as well as methods of implementation mm-hmm. and a few um, stories, um, personal it's a great and book. other. Yeah, great book. Well, again, you know it's what? called The Doing Good Model. Again, Sherry Arison, last name is spelled A-R-I-S-O-N. You can get that on Amazon or anywhere, I would suppose. Hey, uh, you know, and the leadership is so important from people of influence like your mom and your family. So that that's really to be commended. When we get people, you know, of uh, of influence that are that are doing good, I mean, that that says a lot, as opposed to some of the other headlines we, we read about the notables. <laughs> right, David? Uh, yes, Okay. Definitely. Well, look, thanks so much for being our guest. David, we really appreciate it. Yes, we have to take our break Thank coming you. up soon. But David Arison of MIA, thanks so much. And uh, we'll be back with the rest of the show right after new sports and weather. Hang on. Back with the second half of the award winning It's Your Money and Your Life. And now this is the time where Richard thanks our sponsors. A big thank you to our sponsors, as always. Couldn't do it without them. At the top of the list, UBS with Michael Caranta and Drew Freitas. Also, our favorite CPAs on the planet, two of them. Jason Kruger, CPA with Signature Analytics, the best CFO firm here on the West Coast, and more traditional CPAs. Polito Epic CPAs in their lovely new office in San Marcos. California and all of our CPAs successfully survived October 15th. Carl Sheeler with Berkeley Research Group helping business owners improve the value of their businesses by reducing the risks that are inherent in those businesses that risks or those risks that drive value. So Carl Sheeler talking about making money or saving money. Joel Grushkin with cost segregation initiatives helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. Also, Brenda Geiger with the Geiger Law Office. All of this improved cash flow and increased value if you want to protect it. Brenda is an attorney that specializes in estate planning and asset protection. Our banking sponsor, California Republic Bank with Lane Elliott, now also includes Sean Puckett, who used to be a sponsor when he was with, well, that bank that used to be our sponsor, whose name we won't mention. Sean just joined California Republic to head up their UTC office. That's really exciting news. See, once you're a sponsor, Joe, you can never get away. (laughs) Hub International, also known as Mars Maddox Insurance, great employee benefits firm. Neil Staley, recent guest, did a great show with us. The LG Experience and the Lombardi Group. Check out myperfectclient.com. We've got a big event coming up at Omni La Costa on November 2, 3, and 4. LG helps wealth advisors make heroes out of CPAs to the CPAs' very best clients. Paul Hines, upcoming guest. Paul is the... CEO of Hearthstone Private Wealth Management. He also heads up the Ending Elder Financial Abuse Alliance here in San Diego. And last but not least, in addition to the Oceanside Turkey Trot on Thanksgiving morning, the Carlsbad Classic Tennis Tournament is going to be going on all week during Thanksgiving week in Carlsbad. The best women professional tennis players in the world coming into town that week. Check out cldclassic.com. And a big thank you to Courtney 
Lover at PopX Graphics for doing such a great job on our website where our listeners can find out all sorts of cool things, right, Joe? Absolutely. If you just get your cursor over to, uh, we'll go over to iymoney.com, get your cursor over to the sponsor tab. There's a drop down menu there with all their personal information, background information, biographical information. And I know they've worked with Richard for many, many years with great success, correct, Richard? That's actually many, 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 many years. Yes. One footnote to the uh, to the tennis tournament. It's going to yes. be pr- played where? At the former. Park Hyatt Aviara. Right. Former Four Seasons. Former there. Four Seasons. Yeah. Actually, there's a Four Seasons next door. The timeshares, oh, the timeshares are still known as Four Seasons. Okay, but they have the courts there. How yep. many? How many courts, by the way? We're building be? a new one, so it's it's five. Wow, there'll be a, a nice stadium court and everything. Yeah, huh? it's under construction. Great. Well, how about getting into the second half of the show? We've Let's got do a it. pretty important local guest here. He is the executive director of the Beister Institute at the UC San Diego School of Management, um, the Rady School of the Management. The Rady School of Management. And his name is Martin Stambus. Martin, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks very much. Glad to be here. Our pleasure. We're going to learn all about employee stock ownership, right, Richard? We are. How about getting a little bit about Martin's background before we get into that? Martin, born and raised where? Schooled where? And, and how'd uh, you wind up at UCSD? Yes. Uh, well, I uh, started out as a child. And, uh, <laughs> That's good. Small world. Uh, <laughs> grew, up in the, grew up in the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, ended up uh, going to college there at Cal Berkeley. Uh, nice. What town uh, in the Bay Area? Uh, El Cerrito. I used to live in El Cerrito. I uh, went to preschool in El Cerrito. Well, good start. Good yeah. start to life. Yeah. And uh, uh, went off to, uh, to law school from there. Uh, finally. Uh, Berkeley also? or uh, No, in, over in San Francisco. Okay. Small college over there. And, All right. Uh, uh, ended up uh, a little later in my career actually picking up an MBA degree. So I got the business background mm-hmm. in the MBA and the law. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's uh, equipped me pretty well ultimately to be uh, working in the ESOP field. So I've been here at... Uh, San Diego for about 15 years now. Did you did you just move? I mean, you've been in San Diego. You started with the Beister Institute, and you've been there the whole time? Or? Uh, exactly. Uh, came here 15 years ago to join the Beister Institute. And my, my. And br- yeah. Briefly, we've had a lot of guests on from UCSD. What, what exactly is the Beister Institute? So we are, uh, I describe us as a center of expertise in employee stock plans. Uh, mm-hmm. It really comes out of the experience of SAIC, mm. business people in San Diego. One of the all-time great local companies. Yeah, they may recognize that name. Beister, well, uh, Bob Beister was the founder of SAIC. Right. Who passed away not that long ago, actually. Yeah, just this last December. So yeah. less than a year Lived ago. in the same home the whole time, right, I think? He uh, did, right up there. The, the, yeah, the Warren Buffett School. <laughs> yeah, I never needed anything more than I talked about that one time. I said, you know, you're one of these humble guys like... Uh, uh, Hewlett Packard, uh, they're known for uh, having done the same thing. And so you just live in the same house back before you started the company, the same house since 1960. He said, Well, I did have it remodeled, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he wasn't a total hermit or whatever. But now, SAIC, well, just to back up, he, um, this guy was a physicist or something. I He's know he, he started PhD with. PhD nuclear physicist. He worked on the Los Alamos project with Oppenheimer, right? Uh, he did. He came out of there. Yeah. Exactly. And, and then started General Atomic here, right? Uh, he didn't start General Atomic, but he came out to join it right. and uh, ran a division there. And that's when he decided he'd leave and start his own company. And when did he start SAIC? So SAIC started in the late 1969. Okay. Went off and off by himself and decided he wanted to attract some uh, real smart people to come join him. So he said, you come join me, you help build this company, and you'll be a co-owner. Mm-hmm. And I uh, got the first 10 people there to join him as a co-owner. And he said, well, we can't just be the 10 of us. We need a few more. Come join <laughs> us, help us build this company. You'll be a co-owner. And 44,000 people later, he never got around to just hiring employees. It was always, come help us build the company. You'll be a co-owner. Now, it was always privately owned and a lot of stock ownership, uh, employee ownership from the get-go, right? Exactly. From, from the very beginning, within the first couple of years, uh, his ownership stake was down to 10% of the company. He shared right. that much. Of course, uh, he was... Like a lot of those, like I say, those Hewlett Packard 
Bill Hewlett, David Packard. He wasn't really in it just for the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was happy to build a successful company. But he, he, despite his efforts to give everything away, he ended up with a pretty penny at the end of the whole oh, thing. Oh, sure. I'm sure. The founders usually do if it's a yeah. success, right, Richard? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you still you meet tons and tons of SAIC uh, folks here in, in San Diego now retired who um, who did very very well. Yeah, a lot of them. Now yeah. now the company is it? I think they went partially public, right? Uh, they went after he retired. They they look for new leadership and where are you going to find people with the experience of running a forty four thousand employee company? And mm-hmm. all the rest of them are public. So sure enough, they got a guy who was number two out of a big public uh, defense contractor mm-hmm. came in. The first thing he said is, "We ought to go public." Uh-huh. So he took it public. Uh, the, the entire company or just part of it? The whole thing, uh, okay. by and large. He sort of did it in stages. At first, the employees had some special uh, mm-hmm. set aside for them. Then they finally got rid of that. So it's yeah. pretty much an ordinary. So it's a publicly uh, traded uh, company now. At this point now, right. So. Okay. Didn't know that. So, so uh, back in 1969, when he had made this decision that he wanted his team members to own the company, were, were these things called employee stock ownership plans around? Or, or No, actually, that's an interesting point. This thing we know today as the employee stock ownership plan the ESOP, very specific employee program, uh, was uh, became part of the law in 1975. So uh, when he first got started, that didn't exist. So he put stock in employee hands through other mechanisms. Huh. How do you like that? Yeah. So in 1986, he formed the Beister Institute, correct? Uh, right. Yeah. And you joined what year? In 2000. Okay. All right. And then you migrate. When did you merge with uh, the UCSD Rady uh, School of 2004. That, okay. by coincidence, that's when Bob Beister retired and when the Rady School opened its doors. They mm-hmm. coincided and mm-hmm. people sort of talked and put their heads together and said, what do you say we take Beister's old group and we'll merge it into the new school? And everybody liked the idea and it happened. Great. So in San Diego, how many companies would you say have uh, have robust the uh, ESOP program? Oh, probably around 40 to 50. There's there's no place they officially report to, so you mm-hmm. can't have a perfect list. But from what I've seen, it's probably in that range and, and growing every year. But could you tell us briefly what an ESOP is? Yeah, good question. Uh, an ESOP essentially is this pretty remarkable program that allows uh, owners of a business to sell their stock to their employees uh, by selling it into a retirement plan for them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it stru- it's structured as what they call a qualified retirement plan, which makes it eligible for some really incredible tax benefits. Hmm. So the result is that the owners sell the stock to the employees, the owners get paid the full fair market value for the stock, but the employees themselves don't actually pay for it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like magic. How, do the, how is it the employees don't pay for it, but they're buying it? Well, it turns out that these tax benefits basically cover the cost of the whole deal. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's. I want to talk about tax benefits after our break. But there, don't studies show though that companies that are owned by employees tend to have more loyal employees, better morale. Absolutely, they have longer term employees. A turnover goes down, profits go up. There's been a series of studies by various business researchers, and they consistently find that, just as most people would affect, expect, they're more dedicated employees, and the companies are more profitable. Fantastic. Well, let's take our little break right now. We'll come right back with Martin Stavis from the Rady School of Management, Beister Institute, right after these announcements. We are back with Martin Staubitz, Executive Director of the Beister Institute at the Rady School of Management at UC San Diego. I know that's a mouthful, but uh, glad to have him back. Where we leave off, Richard, you wanted to get drilled down on what Before action- we were talking about tax benefits, we had mentioned before the break oh, the about, about how companies tend to have more loyal employees, better morale when they're employee-owned. But, you know, Martin, another practical benefit of ESOPs is that uh, many, many private companies don't really have a market um, to in which the owners 
particularly minority owners, um, have, have any market where they can sell their shares. I, I know to the extent that an ESOP is in place, it actually improves, I guess you would say, the liquidity associated with private companies, does it not? Absolutely. That's probably the number one benefit of, of ESOPs. There's a whole list of benefits, but I'd say the most valuable, unique thing about it is that it provides an opportunity for the owner of a business to sell off any portion of the stock he wants to. And these hmm. days, I, every business owner I talk to all would love the idea to be able to say, I wouldn't want to give up my company entirely, sell the whole thing and walk away. What would I do with myself? But I sure like the idea of maybe taking some money off the table and maybe not having to work quite so hard anymore and come in four days a week or take those longer vacations. Mm-hmm. So the CSOP provides this remarkable mechanism where the owner can sell any portion of the company, 20%, 30%, 50%, whatever they want to sell, they sell it to the employees through this retirement plan. And now that the employees have that and we explain it thoroughly to the employees and they kind of get it that, wow, this is their company too. This owner can now begin to kind of scale back his own time and delegate more stuff and trust these guys to kind of mine the store for him and he can finally go off and take that trip well, to the South Seas for four weeks you never felt he could get away with <laughs> before. Well, it's pretty intuitive. When everyone has a stake in the outcome, you kind of have each other's back rather than stabbing backs, you have other people's backs. Is that pretty much the kind That's <laughs> exactly the dynamic goes on. And they're all eyes on the same prize. They're all trying to build yeah. this thing together. So it really does begin to take on the feel of a, of a sports team when you're in one of these companies with the employee ownership. Ah, good analogy. Yeah. Good analogy. Hey, um, but let's talk about tax benefits because I know, I know as a matter of public policy, the Internal Revenue Code, um, does favor these kinds of transactions. Can you tell us how? Sure. Uh, there are really three layers of tax benefits. It's pretty amazing how uh, these things add up. The first layer is that the uh, company will be able to gain a tax deduction uh, based on the value of whatever the stock was going to the ESOP. So if an owner has a $10 million company and decides to sell half of it into the ESOP, it's selling a $5 million interest, the company's going to gain $5 million of the tax deductions. So its taxes are going to go down by... In California, it's the state and federal taxes together add up to around 40%. So right off the bat, 40% of the cost is going to be offset for the company's tax savings. The next layer is the owner himself. If you, any, if you sell the stock to anybody else in the world, any buyer, you're going to pay capital gains mm-hmm. tax on that. And the capital gains taxes are well over a third these days. Especially here in California. In California, it's 37% <laughs> yep. all, all in uh, uh, of what you, your proceeds would disappear off to state and federal taxes. It's a unique rule for the ESOP, not available anywhere else in the world. It's a unique rule. If you sell to the ESOP, you can permanently defer those taxes. You sell $5 million worth of stock, you walk away with the whole $5 million. So hmm. now you've got 40% saving at the company, another 37% at the level of the owner. That's 77% of the cost is offset. And then if you said, you know, that SAIC experience, they were pretty successful with the idea that the employees were highly motivated because they owned a piece of the company and they took it really personally. Maybe I don't need any kind of complicated ESOP program. I'll just give my employees some stock. So... You mm-hmm. give this young fella, hey, fella, here's the stock certificate for $10,000 worth of stock. Isn't that great? You know, the fellow goes home and talks to his buddy who's a CPA that night, and the buddy says, now you realize that that's taxable mm-hmm. to you. Even though it's not cash, that's taxable. You're going to end up owing over $3,000 in taxes this year for that. And the young fellow goes back to work the next day and throws the certificate back <laughs> in the boss's face. I don't want this stupid piece of paper. It's costing me $3,000. Mm-hmm. So if you simply give stock to employees, that's taxable. But if you do it through an ESOP, they get to defer the value. So now they're receiving stock. There's nothing for upside. If you add their tax savings in, you're now past 100% of the deal. So a $5 million transaction would generate about $5.3 million worth of tax savings. Mm-hmm. So that's all. I remember a few years ago, I think it was on 60 Minutes, and maybe you gents remember the, the story, but I think there was a company called Solaire, and they actually the company was failing, 
and the employees banded together and bought the company. You remember this uh, episode? Yeah, that used to happen back in the and days. They saved in, the company, by the way. It's a good, it's a good story. In so. the days when companies were really struggling in the old Rust Belt, there were some stories of employee buyouts that employees would organize, and, and they tried sometimes. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes mm-hmm. they were able to buy it out. Uh, but often it created an impression that these companies with these employee ownership programs are kind of struggling, and maybe they managed to barely save it, but it's still kind of a weak sister. What's really changed today is these companies become extremely strong because what happens is that ultimately, if the owner eventually sells all the stock, I'm going to fully retire, and maybe I sold half a few years ago, I'm going to sell the other half, it becomes 100% ESOP owned. That company, get ready for this, that company becomes a completely tax-exempt business. Huh. It no longer pays taxes, even though it's a for-profit business. Huh. So with all you want that, to explain that again? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, because it's inside that, of a qualified plan. Well, it's a two-step. It's a process. two-step process, okay. right? But, it, it, but it, what it would do is, it would, it would, if it wasn't already, it would organize, it would file to operate as an S corporation, right? And S corporations, of course, by definition, don't pay taxes, but their income is usually taxable to the owner. Okay. And the owner puts it on their personal 1040, and they still ends up getting you know, a lot of taxes on the company earnings, but. If the ESOP, the sole owner is the ESOP itself, not the employees. Legally, it's the ah, ESOP trust. Gotcha. And a qualified plan trust is tax exempt. Hmm. So both the business itself and the owner are both tax exempt. Uh, nobody left to pay taxes. So a company makes a million dollars into the year, keeps the whole million. Doesn't even have to go offshore. No, yes. it's completely illegal. It's wow. a, that amounts to a 67% increase in your after tax profit. Completely legal. Hey, wow. so Martin, what kind of companies um, do you see East? I don't mean name names. Yeah. What kind of companies do you do ESOPs for? It's really broad in terms of industry and where it works well. Uh, it works in just about any industry. Um, there's a few things like law firms and doctor's offices have to be owned by lawyers and doctors. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably wouldn't work in a company that's essentially a uh, an investment company. Like you got like seven guys managing a three and million dollar portfolio. What, manu- manufacturing, but or? manufacturing service particularly popular in things like engineering companies. Mm-hmm. I've done in construction companies. Uh, really, just about anything. We any kind of operating company where uh, particularly the you know the, the really nice bit is a company where. The idea that employees owning a stake would probably uh, improve company performance. Then you've got a real home run. Would it work with like a franchise? Like let's say Subway came to you, so we want to do Yeah, a- it's even done in a, in a franchise. They're huh. an independent corporation, uh, whoever the franchisor is, hmm. uh, they can make that work. Uh, one of the most successful ones around here for a long time, it wasn't a franchise. Well, it wasn't really a franchise system, was Hot Dog on a Stick. Huh. Uh, hmm. People would have thought, those, they have mostly kids working there. they got high school well, age kids. They have to give me a, hat, a, a stock to wear that hat. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it was really successful there. Uh, the company ran into some problems for some other uh, reasons involving uh-huh. leases, but uh, the employee ownership thing worked really well. So I wonder if In-N-Out Burger is using, uh, using, is there a successful company? They but, ought to be looking at it. Yeah. But if it works in uh, sort of quick service like, uh, like Hot Dog and a Stick, it can work in a lot of companies. Hmm. So uh, why do a lot of founders and, and major shareholders in privately held companies don't, why don't they know about ESOP? Well, that's a, a good question. Uh, nobody's really educating him. I think the traditional uh, sort of business brokerage investment banking world uh, hasn't really figured out a way to make a lot of money off of this themselves. Right, because they always try to bring in outside money. Right. Yeah. It's just so like the, Joel Grushkin and cost segregation. I mean, it's just an awareness thing. And yeah. yeah. Does Beister uh, market? Do you do you try to uh, do outreach? Or we do you, d- yeah, we do out. We uh, do some. We do speaking at various kinds of events. Folks that are interested in having us come and talk to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to them about that. Uh, but. Uh, 
you know, it's not the kind of thing where you can just put an ad in Life magazine or something. Because, gotcha. You know, very few readers. Well, we have a couple minutes. We should talk about the website. There's so much good information. Yeah, it's a long, long website yeah. name. So it's at ucsd.edu. But folks, if you just uh, do an online search for Beister, B-E-Y-S-T-E-R Institute, I'm sure you'll find it. And um, there's there's online uh, webinars and all kinds of great things on there. Anything you want to highlight in terms of events or anything, uh, Martin? Uh, we have uh, yeah the monthly uh, series of webinars. We have courses we teach. If you set up an ESOP, we'll have these seminar courses on how to manage that well and effectively. Mm-hmm. So we really pretty much take care of you. There are people who will uh, set up, you know, they're in there for the transaction. They want to take their slice, and as soon as the dust settles, they're, they've disappeared on you. We're always around to help you. And the menu of information and op- down the left-hand column there, I'll tell you, that is one of the best-organized websites I've seen in a long, long time. So, and Martin, <laughs> question. You. Um, you, the ESOPs have been in the tax code for 40 years. I, I know President Obama has suggested all kinds of tax benefits should disappear. Do you feel ESOPs are in pretty strong position? They are in a strong position. As you said, they've been around since 1975, so uh, they've lasted this long. Uh, occasionally, there's some uh, flurry of concern whenever there's uh, you know, budget issues in the federal government. Some young staffer generates a long list of possible things they could eliminate to uh, increase uh, collections on, t- on federal taxes, but it never goes anywhere. There's some pretty strong support in Congress. Uh, a great thing is that it's very bipartisan. Everybody sees something in this idea of employee ownership they like. That's so. great. Well, let's hope we get the word out some more. Martin Stabas from the Beister Institute, thank you so much for being our guest at the UCSD San Diego um, School of Management. Richard, always great to see you. And uh, Justin Hart on our, our, our board, thanks for making us sound terrific. Thank you to Craig Blank, our account executive, and to Dave Smith, our programming geniuses, genius here at KFMB. All these shows are on iymoney.com, including this podcast. And uh, have a great week. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Rick. Pleasure.